Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry once again. I pray that the Lord has richly blessed you this past year as He has me. My experience has deepened through trials and victories, and I hope that yours has also. The powerful life story of Esther stands as a phenomenal lesson book of the great controversy. It is a story that has important lessons for all who read it in Scripture. Children love Esther and want to be like her, perhaps because it is the classic miracle success story with glamorous overtones. Children, however, aren't the only ones for whom this gripping and dramatic story is meant. The life of Esther is meant for those of us living at the very end of time. As we study this together over the next couple of months, I pray that you will gain an enormous blessing, but also that you will begin to see the Old Testament stories in a different way than you have ever seen them before. God put them there to open our eyes about the things coming upon us at the end of time and to warn us of the dangers and issues involved in the events that are about to take place. After listening to this series of messages, you will never look at the old Bible stories in the same way. Before we begin... Let us once again ask God's blessing upon our study together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the stories in Scripture that tell us of your love and your watch care over your people. Thank you for the evidence that reveals to us that we are living in the end time and that soon Jesus will come. But there is a crisis that will come upon God's people just before Jesus comes, and we want to be ready for that. As we study the story of Esther, please open to our minds the things we haven't seen before. Give us fresh meat from the Word to encourage us, to comfort us, and to strengthen us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There is a compelling statement in the book Adventist Home which we should read. It is found on pages 484 and 485. To every household and every school, to every parent, teacher, and child upon whom has shone the light of the gospel, comes at this crisis 
the question put to Esther the queen at that momentous crisis in Israel's history. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You are an Esther in this last moment of earth's history. You are called to this hour to be a witness to Christ and his truth. You have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. But how many of God's people have the character of Esther? How many are really preparing for the crisis that will call for the greatest faith and action this world and God's church have ever seen? I dare say that few souls comprehend the enormous crisis and the momentous opportunities that lie ahead of those that are prepared for them. But there is a larger and more advanced picture that we are given as we study the book of Esther. It involves the great controversy between Christ and Satan over God's church, and it is an illustration of what is to take place at the end of time just before Jesus comes again even down to some very surprising details. Each main character in the story has his counterpart in the great controversy. The story of Esther mirrors the last crisis in the seen and the unseen worlds. Let us read from Prophets and Kings, page 605. The trying experiences that came to God's people in the days of Esther were not peculiar to that age alone. The revelator, looking down the ages to the close of time, has declared, The dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 12.17 The same Spirit that in ages past led men to persecute the true church will in the future lead to the pursuance of a similar course toward those who maintain their loyalty to God. Even now, Preparations are being made for this last great conflict. I tell you, friends, the story of Esther is God's way of telling us what is coming and how it will come about. It also gives us assurance of God's intervening hand keeping watch over his own. Let us read the scriptures. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, 
he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. This is Xerxes the Great, known in Scripture as Ahasuerus, who ruled in the 5th century B.C. He followed Darius Histaspus, who had made the second decree releasing the Jews so that they could return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. Darius had given them great advantages. In Prophets and Kings, we are told that God foresaw that a terrible time was to come upon God's people, and thus he moved upon Darius to encourage them to leave. Those that did not leave, however, came face to face with death. Do you think that this has applications for us today? God has told us over and over that we must leave the cities, for example. Yet many of God's people fail to obey Him. In spite of difficulties, as it was back then, it is more easy now than it will ever be. Those who are praying and pleading with God for this will have an answer. It may require sacrifice, but God will make a way. When God's will is made known to us, it rests with us to take action and follow His counsel, depending on Him to open the doors of opportunity, as He did for the Jews under Darius. But to remain where God has told us not to be is folly. The final crisis will be greater in the cities and more intense than in the more remote areas of the world. But that favorable time to leave had passed for the Jews in Babylon, and they were now about to face a time of trouble such as they had never experienced, a death decree. Do you think God's warnings today are for our good and our protection? We are about to face a time of trouble such as never was, and we need His warnings and counsel more than ever, and we need to follow it. Yet the marvelous loving kindness of God is seen in preparing a deliverance for His people. Aren't you thankful that God is so kind and gracious? Do you think that God will make a way of deliverance for His people from the time of trouble such as never was? Of course He will. But if we do not obey Him, that deliverance will not be for us. Keep in mind as we study that a human allegory of divine things does not stand on all fours, so to speak. Human beings, and especially carnal ones, can never fully reflect God's character or His purpose. Yet there is an overriding principle in the story that transcends human limitations. 
It is that principle that we are going to study, and I think you will be amazed as we do. When God wants to talk to us about big and important things, He uses human stories to illustrate it. A Hesuerist, for example, is carnal and loves to party and get drunk, but yet we can see that he plays an important role in the illustration of the final crisis that the book of Esther presents. Another example of the allegorical nature of Esther involves the feast. A feast is a principle of God's kingdom, too. Though it is not a debauched feast, it is nevertheless a very important element. After all, you and I are invited to a feast called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, and Jesus himself knocks at our heart's door and promises to come in and feast or sup with us. Meals should be a very bonding time, and God used feasts and meals in the sanctuary service, in the ordinances he left for his church, in the new earth, and in other ways to bond his people to himself. Ahasuerus' feasts, though greatly faulted, is a dim symbol of the feast that God wants to have with you and me, and you'll see why. Now notice verse 4. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even an hundred and fourscore days. For six months Ahasuerus held this feast. It went on and on. Notice that he showed the people the riches of his glorious kingdom. Isn't that what God wants to do? Doesn't God want to show you the riches of His grace, His character, and the rich principles of His kingdom? Notice Ephesians 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. What a wonderful God we serve. Think about it. You are invited to be a prince or princess and a noble in the heavenly kingdom. You are invited to become part of the power of the universe and to come to a feast with Christ where he will show you his majesty and power by the lives and testimony of his followers. Revelation 1 verse 6 says, that we are going to be kings and priests unto God with Christ on his throne. And one day he is going to show us the wonders of his universe similar to what Ahasuerus did in his day. We will be dazzled by heaven's glory in much the same way as the common people at Ahasuerus' feasts were dazzled by the beauty and glory of the court in verse 6, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings, 
and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. Listen to this statement from Conflict and Courage, page 243. Occasions of indulgence, such as are pictured in the first chapter of Esther, do not glorify God, but the Lord accomplishes His will through men who are nevertheless misleading others. The Lord works out His plans through men who do not acknowledge His lessons of wisdom. In His hand is the heart of every earthly ruler to turn whithersoever he will, as he turneth the waters of the river. So God speaks to us from behind the scenes, from the shadows, that is, his vantage point. In spite of his indulgence and licentiousness, Ahasuerus reveals some things about the future that we would not otherwise see. Even though he may have been duped by Haman, the net result is the same as in the great controversy and the final crisis. God must allow Satan to play out his agenda in the world and in the church. Therefore, in spite of human wickedness, God used Ahasuerus to represent himself in the great controversy and final crisis, and to open our minds to the surprising nature of these things. Ahasuerus, for example, is the ultimate judge. His word is law, and his decisions are final. There is no appeal beyond him. He occupies the same position in the kingdom that God does in the great controversy. Though he is human, and a rather debased one at that, God in his mercy to us places him in this story in such a way that we can see the justice of God over the enemies of God's people. Ahasuerus cannot represent God in the fullest sense, but he plays a role in the controversy which is similar to the role that God must play also. Verse 5 And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So now there is another feast. This time it is just for those in the palace city of Susa, or Shushan, which is about 150 miles east of Babylon in modern Iraq. This feast shows the generosity of Ahasuerus. He is actually a man that is interested in all his subjects, even the menial ones. The description of the palace reveals to us that it must have been a most gorgeous place, a sight unfamiliar to many of the people in attendance. Likewise, no doubt, our eyes will dazzle 
at the sight of the heavenly palace where Jesus is going to feast with us. Now notice verse 7. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Ahasuerus' wine was no doubt fermented, but it is never forced upon the people, and Christ never forces the will or the conscience. And in the last days, when truth and light from God's holy word is more abundant than at any other time in history, God still lets his subjects choose whether or not to accept it. Now the story begins to get interesting. Verses 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Notice the king's purpose. He wanted to show all his people and rulers the beauty of his queen. Isn't that what God wants to do with his church? Isn't it God's purpose to reveal himself through the character of his people? In Scripture, a woman represents a church. God's church is his bride. Let me read it to you from the Spirit of Prophecy. Very close and sacred is the relation between Christ and his church. He, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. That's the General Conference Bulletin, July 1, 1902. Though in other places the bride is described as the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem represents the center of Christ's kingdom, his palace, his Shushan. The people are part of his royal kingdom. Their loyalties and affections are on Jerusalem, wherein is the palace and the temple. Therefore, the new Jerusalem also represents God's church, where he dwells and over which he rules. Verse 12. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Can you think of a church that refused to obey God and that refused to reveal his glory and character? Of course you can. Israel failed to represent the glory and character of God, 
They refused to obey him. They stoned the prophets. They went whoring after idols. And they rejected the Son of God. They could no longer be his channel of light to the world. God had to depose them from being his church, just as Ahasuerus deposed Vashti. God had to choose another church, just like King Ahasuerus had to choose another bride. Verse 16. And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes, and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes. When it shall be reported, the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. Vashti lost her influence. She could no longer represent the king in her sphere of influence. Likewise, Israel lost the influence that God had given to her and could no longer represent him. Notice, too, that the counselors were afraid that there would arise too much contempt and wrath. Imagine what would have happened if Israel had fulfilled God's purpose. Do you think we would have had so many bloody wars in history? Do you think we would have witnessed the Holocaust? Do you think we would be facing the results of the feminist movement and the gay movement, both of which arise, to a certain extent, from too much contempt and wrath? When God's principles of family order are disturbed, it creates baleful results. Here in the story of Esther, we see a prediction of what would happen to society if there were multitudes of dysfunctional families. It is a pointed warning about the very time in which we live, just before the final crisis. Some years after Vashti is dethroned, Ahasuerus gets around to choosing a new queen. He had been at war with the Greeks, and had been distracted. The king's servants propose a simple plan. Bring all the most beautiful women to the palace, and then take your pick. Now another character in the epic story is introduced. His name is Mordecai. Before we find out whom he represents in the great controversy, let us learn something about him. Mordecai is a keeper or a guardian of the gate of the palace. Perhaps he is even the one in charge of palace security. He may also have been responsible for the chamberlains or eunuchs that guarded the inner doors of the palace. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In many ways, Mordecai actually represents Christ in the great controversy. He is the guardian of the way into the king, symbolically illustrating the work of Christ in opening the way to eternal fellowship with our Father in heaven. It is through Christ that we have forgiveness of sins, favor with God, and an eternal home in heaven. Without Christ, it is impossible to have access to the Father. There are other ways in which Mordecai represents Christ. He is the great antagonist to Haman, just as Christ is the great antagonist to Satan. Note that he brought up Hadessa in verse 7, which happens to be his cousin. He has adopted her into his family when her parents died. What has Christ done to his church? He has adopted it. He nurtures it and cares for it, just like Mordecai adopted Hadessa, nurtured her, and cared for her. Verse 7 tells us that he took her for his own daughter. Mordecai is an insider in the palace. He was acquainted with all the happenings of the court. He was familiar with court proceedings and legal processes, the king's plans, and is acquainted with the king's family. Jesus, likewise, is the great insider of heaven. He is familiar with heaven's legal challenges in the great controversy. He is fully acquainted with the Father's plans and is an intimate in the heavenly family. As the story unfolds, you will yet see other important parallels between Mordecai and Christ. Verse 8 says, When many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house. Once most all of the other maidens had arrived at the palace, Mordecai sends Esther. This is strategic. He wants her beauty to catch them all by surprise. Esther obviously represents God's church, but more specifically, she represents the last church or the remnant church. And when you think about it, most of the other churches are commonplace and mundane, both in doctrine and in character, in comparison to the remnant church. When people understand the Adventist message, they are often caught by surprise, having never realized how deep and complete it is. Even though you can still find God in other churches, there is none so fair and beautiful as Christ's last church. No doubt there was some jealousy among the other women at the bestowal of beauty lavished upon Esther. 
and perhaps unkind things were said about her among the other virgins. Likewise, it shouldn't surprise us that there are many unkind things said about God's remnant church too. After all, no one can effectively and persuasively contest her doctrines and principles, her beauty, so they have to resort to unkind words. Haggai does not know Esther's birth name. He only knows her Persian name. Apparently, Mordecai gave her the name Esther so that she would not have to reveal her true identity. Her name means star. And how fitting that Esther, a symbol of God's church, be represented as a star. The scripture says, And he had in his right hand seven stars. The seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. That's Revelation chapter 1, 16 and 20. These stars are the teachers and ministers of the church, represented as being in the hand of Christ. Likewise, the church is the messenger to the world. It is the bright star in Christ's hand that reveals his character to the lost. The remnant church especially is going to instruct the world in the highest and best principles of God's kingdom. Even though most will tragically reject its teaching, it is a bright star in the darkest of times. How fitting that Mordecai gave Hadessa the name Esther. The church represents Christ, the bright and morning star. The woman clothed with the sun has a crown of twelve stars on her head. Men looked to the stars to guide their ships. The wise men followed the star to the baby Jesus. The stars in the heavens have always provided assurance that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Likewise, the church reveals this truth about God as a shining witness in the heavens. Incidentally, there were many other women that were part of a Hasuerus kingdom. These women were to be instructed in the way of God by Esther. Likewise, God has many churches that are not in this fold, yet they are a part of His church, because they follow the light they have. I believe whole churches will join present truth when they understand it, and the Holy Spirit moves in on them. I know some that have already. It is God's remnant people that are to teach them His ways and His truth and lead them to safety. Haggai is very impressed with Esther's physical beauty, but it is her character and dignity that appeals to him most. Verse 9 says that he speedily gave her her things for purification and gave her the best place in the house of women. When Esther comes to the palace, not only is she physically beautiful, 
but her countenance shines with a brightness and radiance of Christ's character. The same is true when we have Jesus in our hearts. Our countenances will reveal His love and power, and it is noticed. That is exactly what the church is supposed to do, reveal the character of Christ to the unlooking world through its countenance and through its practice. Verse 11 tells us that Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know, to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Do you think that is what Jesus does with his church? Of course he does. Every day he looks after his people, both personally and his church collectively, to be sure that their needs are met, and that they are being nurtured in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is why it is so important to spend time with Christ every day, to learn his will and to take spiritual nourishment from him. Without it, you cannot be a part of his church. In verse 12, we are given an interesting view of the purification process that these women went through. I take special interest in this because the plan of redemption is about purification also. God's church must be purified, else it cannot be redeemed. But pay attention to this verse. It says, For so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. Notice that the purification of Esther and the other maidens was one year long. Likewise, the round of sanctuary services, which was all about purifying the church, was one year long. Esther, in type, was purified before going to see the king. Likewise, in antitype, the church, the remnant church, must be purified if she is going to see her king. The great controversy cannot end unless the church is purified. Again, Esther is a symbol of God's church on earth. When Esther finally went in before the king, the scripture tells us that he loved Esther above all the women, that he made her queen instead of Vashti. Now pay particular attention to verse 18. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast, and he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Do you remember what happened when Christ established his new church? He poured out his Holy Spirit in the early reign and gave gifts unto men. That's found in Ephesians 4, verse 8. 
Let's read it. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Notice that King Ahasuerus, also in type, gives gifts unto men when Esther becomes queen. Notice also that there is a feast called Esther's Feast to commemorate his love for her. What did Jesus do with his disciples in establishing his church? He gave them ordinances including the Lord's Supper, another feast that commemorates God's love for his church in sending Christ to redeem her. There is one more little event that sets the stage for the great crisis of Esther's life. It is a seemingly insignificant incident. It appears that Mordecai becomes aware of a plot to kill the king. We find it in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth, and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. This little side trip into the politics of the court of Persia shows us something important. Mordecai is the informant to Esther, and in type represents Jesus, who is the informant to his church of anything that will affect her welfare. Like Mordecai, he keeps a watchful eye and warns his people of dangers and difficulties. He sits in the spiritual gate and gathers information concerning the plots of Satan to overthrow the apple of his eye. The parallels in types and symbols are amazingly extensive between the characters in the story of Esther and the great controversy. As we proceed, we will gain a clear understanding that the story of Esther is a type of the last great crisis that God's people will face before Jesus comes the second time. Next month, we will pick up the story and learn about the plot to destroy all of God's people in one day. We will also learn of a few more characters that symbolize figures in the great controversy. In closing this message, let me read to you a very special quotation that will show us that we have a special work to do today, just like Esther in her day. It also tells us something about next month's message. It is from Prophets and Kings, page 605. 
the decree that will finally go forth against the remnant people of God will be very similar to that issued by Ahasuerus against the Jews. Today the enemies of the true church see in the little company keeping the Sabbath commandment a Mordecai in the gate. The reverence of God's people for his law is a constant rebuke to those who have cast off the fear of the Lord and are trampling on his Sabbath. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it is with grateful hearts that we study the story of Esther. We recognize in it that you are above all and you are working behind the scenes in the shadows, keeping watch above your own. May we have confidence in your love and benevolent heart toward your precious remnant people. And may we lean mightily upon your arm of strength in every crisis in our lives. Lord, there are many listeners to this tape that are struggling with sin. And friend, perhaps you painfully and longingly desire to leave your life of sin and live a pure life like Esther, to have the countenance of Jesus on your face. Perhaps you aren't living up to the name you profess and are spiritually dead. Jesus wants to give you his peace and a certainty of his love and forgiveness in your heart. You may have it indeed. Our loving Father in heaven holds out the scepter to any repentant soul that comes to him, just like Ahasuerus held out the scepter to Esther. Just pray in your heart with me. Lord, take my sins and cast them away. Take my heart and purify it. Restore me into your image so that I will have the courage to face the enemy in your strength. I have sinned often and need cleansing. I trust in you for life and happiness and peace. And thank you for the story of Esther. In Jesus' name, amen. Though man may strive to go beyond the reef of space, to crawl beyond the distant glimmering stars, this world's a room so
hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month Worst outbreak in 50 years, EEE virus. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry News. My name is Sabrina Peterson, and I'm filling in for Pastor Mayer while he's on medical leave. Fall in the Northeast is one of the most beautiful times of the year. The leaves are changing, and temperatures haven't quite plummeted yet. But this fall, people from Massachusetts to Michigan are actually praying for an early winter and officials are warning entire communities to stay indoors. That's because for the first time in more than a decade, a mosquito-transmitted disease called EEE is killing people. It's been nearly 50 years since the last outbreak of this scale. So EEE virus is a mosquito-borne virus that occurs in the eastern half of the U.S., and it's a very rare disease. Philip Armstrong, director of the Mosquito Surveillance Program at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, told CBN News. 
EEE is not a virus humans often contract because the specific mosquito that carries EEE prefers to feed on birds. Armstrong and his team became concerned early in the season when they noticed an unusually high number of this mosquito species. We didn't have any evidence of EEE virus until later in the season, but we knew the conditions were right. If the virus was brought in by a migratory bird, then it could spread like wildfire. And sure enough, that's what happened, Armstrong said. The body's immune system can usually kill the infection, but about 1 in 20 cases develop the brain infection, encephalitis. Once that happens, the odds of survival are slim. Typically, in any given year, we average about 7 human cases nationwide. It kills about a third of those that develop the disease, and of those that survive, many of them suffer from lifelong neurological damage, Armstrong explained. In Connecticut, three of the four confirmed cases with EEE have died. It starts off with a high fever, maybe a stiff neck, but then it will progress to confusion, seizures, and even coma and death, Armstrong said. Given the widespread severity, extra precautions are underway from New England to Michigan. This includes increased mosquito spraying and moving nighttime sporting events to the afternoon. It's safety first. I mean, everything we do is regarded to athlete safety and fan safety, said Steve Risser, director of athletics for Windsor Public Schools. While mosquito activity is finally winding down for the season, this year's outbreak won't be eliminated until the first hard frost. Until then, people in affected regions need to avoid mosquito bites. That could mean doing simple measures like covering up, wearing long-sleeve pants and shirts, wearing socks and shoes when you're outdoors, particularly in the evening hours when they're most active, and consider wearing a repellent to any exposed skin surfaces as well. That will go a long way in protecting you and your family, Armstrong said. Scientists at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Center have actually found that the virus can survive the winter, even if mosquitoes don't. That means that next summer we could be faced with another EEE outbreak. Satan works through the elements also to garner his harvest of unprepared souls. He has studied the secrets of the laboratories of nature, and he uses all his power to control the elements as far as God allows. When he was suffered to afflict Job, how quickly flocks and herds, servants, houses, children were swept away one trouble succeeding another as in a moment. It is God that shields his creatures and hedges them in from the power of the destroyer. But the Christian world have shown contempt for the law of Jehovah, and the Lord will do just what he has declared that he would. He will withdraw his blessings from the earth and remove his protecting care from those who are rebelling against his law and teaching and forcing others to do the same. Satan has control of all whom God does not especially guard. He will favor and prosper some in order to further his own designs, and he will bring trouble upon others and lead men to believe that it is God who is afflicting them. The Great Controversy, page 589. Next, Beto O'Rourke would end tax-exempt status for churches opposing gay marriage. Yes, Beto O'Rourke told a CNN town hall on LGBTQ equality Thursday night. 
he would use the government tax code to crimp the free exercise of religion. CNN's Don Lemon pointed to O'Rourke's LGBTQ plan. This is what you write. Freedom of religion is a fundamental right, but it should not be used to discriminate. Do you think religious institutions like colleges, churches, charities should lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? Yes, O'Rourke said. There can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. And so, as president, we are going to make that a priority, and we are going to stop those who are infringing upon the human rights of our fellow Americans. Consider how such a decision could affect churches who try to remain faithful to the Bible. The LGBTQ activists are surrounding the legal house of the United States, so the Bible is not upheld as the moral voice. They have largely infiltrated the Democratic Party and are achieving a subtle influence on the Republican Party as well. Think of the implications of that. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Genesis 19.4 Next. Court rules that gender concerns override religious principles. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry News. My name is Sabrina Peterson, and I'm filling in for Pastor Mayer while he's on medical leave. A woman diagnosed with gender dysphoria can sue a Catholic hospital for refusing to surgically remove her uterus as part of the sex reassignment process, despite the hospital's religious objection to performing the operation an appeals court in California ruled. The ruling pits competing legal interests against each other, elevating civil rights concerns involving sexual orientation and gender identity over the right of religious institutions to adhere to their sincerely held beliefs in the provision of services. The Court of Appeals of California ruled September 17th in Minton v. Dignity Health that Dignity Health violated California's UNRWA Civil Rights Act by withholding the medical care that Evan Minton requested. The appeals court revived Minton's lawsuit, sending it back for further consideration to San Francisco Superior Court, which previously dismissed the action. Minton, who identifies as a man, had initiated hormone replacement therapy in 2012 and had a mastectomy in 2014, and intended to complete the hysterectomy before undergoing phalloplasty to complete the transition, Catholic News Agency reports. Minton, who was represented by the American Civil Liberties Union, claimed in the lawsuit that Sacramento area Mercy San Juan Medical Center, operated by Dignity Health, canceled a scheduled hysterectomy when the patient told a nurse she identified as transgendered. The refusal of Dignity Health to allow a doctor to perform this common procedure simply because the patient is transgender is discriminatory, Elizabeth Gill, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU of Northern California said when the lawsuit was filed. This is a hospital that is open to the general public, so it's illegal for them to turn away someone based on gender identity. 
According to the appeals court, the hospital's refusal to perform the operation, as originally scheduled, caused Minton great anxiety and grief. Minton experienced a startling and painful notification that the surgery would not go forward, and the cancellation itself constituted discrimination. But within 72 hours of the cancellation, Dignity Health arranged for Minton to have the surgery performed at a nearby non-Catholic hospital within the network. Minton had the surgery and sued anyway. The appeals court found that the three-day waiting period that followed the Catholic hospital's religious objection to performing the hysterectomy violated Minton's right under state law to receive full and equal medical care. Dignity Health could safeguard the religious liberty of its Catholic hospitals only if it can provide all persons with full and equal medical care at comparable facilities not subject to the same religious restrictions. Although Dignity Health likely mitigated Minton's damages by performing the surgery at a different hospital, this did not extinguish her claim under state law, the court ruled. Dignity Health, on the other hand, maintained throughout the legal proceeding that Mercy San Juan Medical Center was within its rights to refuse the uterus removal on religious grounds. A 2016 letter addressed to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that was signed by the General Counsel for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops stated that in the bishop's view, denying surgery to remove healthy organs from an individual seeking to transition to another sex wouldn't be discriminatory. A hospital does not engage in discrimination when, for example, it performs a mastectomy or hysterectomy on a woman with breast or uterine cancer, respectively, but declines to perform such a procedure on a woman with perfectly healthy breasts or uterus who is seeking to have the appearance of a man. It was unclear at press time if Dignity Health intends to appeal the ruling. The healthcare system didn't immediately return messages seeking comment. But at National Review, lawyer commentator David French urged an appeal to the Supreme Court. An appeal should be pursued because religious freedom needs to be protected in this case, in which a Catholic hospital was upholding basic Catholic religious doctrine, he wrote. Note the burden this ruling places on Catholic institutions. They will be compelled to provide care unless they actively facilitate the provision of care elsewhere. And even the most brief delays are legally intolerable, French wrote. In a separate case, a Catholic charity and two foster parents are asking the Supreme Court to take up their case after a federal appeals court ruled that Philadelphia could refuse to work with the charity because it has a religious-based objection to same-sex marriage. The case, cited as Sharonel Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, dates to March 2018, when Philadelphia officials said the opioid crisis had created an urgent need for 300 new foster care families in the city. Days later, the city blocked Catholic Social Services, CSS, and Bethany Christian Services from taking on new foster care cases, alleging the agencies had run afoul of the city's Fair Practices Ordinance, which forbids discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Certain religious adoption agencies, such as CSS, choose to put children only with mother-father couples in accordance with their Christian beliefs. 
But left-wing groups such as the ACLU and Lambda Legal have filed lawsuits in various states to prevent religious-based agencies such as CSS from helping children who need foster care placement. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, Luke 17, 28. Next, raids and arrests cast doubt on the Holy See's cleanup. The block of shops, offices, and apartments at 60 Sloan Avenue was once a warehouse for Herods of London. Now it is the focal point of the latest financial scandal to rock the Vatican. Potentially the worst since Archbishop Paul Marcinkus, whose buccaneering presidency of the Vatican Bank in the 1970s and 1980s led it to deal with masons and mobsters. At stake now, as then, is not just the probity of an individual, but the trustworthiness of the Holy See's system of financial governance. On October 1st, the Vatican's gendarmes, on order from its prosecutors, raided the offices of the Financial Information Authority, AIF, the banking regulator, and the Secretariat of State, which combines the roles of Prime Minister's Office and Foreign Ministry in the Vatican administration. They were looking for documents and electronic devices, the Vatican said. A leaked circular to the Swiss guards, who control access to the walled city, showed that among the five officials suspended pending the outcome of the investigation was the AIF's director, Tommaso Di Russa. It's a nightmare, says a senior Vatican official. It risks undoing everything we have achieved in the past eight years. In 2011, the Vatican agreed to inspection of its financial sector by Moneyval, Europe's anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing watchdog. It has since created an institutional framework similar to those of more conventional states. Dodgy accounts have been closed at the Vatican Bank, properly known as the Institute for the Works of Religion, or IOR. On the days of the raids, the IOR passed the latest milestone on its road to respectability when it began using the money transfer services of the single euro payments area. But the IOR's employees are not the only ones handling money in the Vatican. The administration of the Patrimony of the Apostolic See, APSA, acts as the Sovereign Wealth Fund of the Holy See, the central administration of the Catholic Church. The government of the Vatican City State earns revenue from the lucrative Vatican museums, and several of the Holy See's ministries, known as dicasteries, manage pots of money without oversight by the AIF. In 2014, Pope Francis created a secretariat for the economy to oversee all the financial activities of the Holy See and the Vatican City State. Its first boss, Cardinal George Pell, who is appealing against a conviction for child abuse in Australia, said that after he took over, he discovered hundreds of millions of euros that did not appear on the balance sheet. Some in the Vatican, where conspiracy theories flourish, believe he would not be in jail had he not tried to seize control of those funds. Also notionally under the new body's remit is the Secretariat of State, which reportedly manages around 800 million euro, about 880 million dollars. It controls the contributions of the faithful to the papacy, 
charmingly if modestly known as Peter's Pence, St. Peter being the apostle chosen by Jesus to lead his church. It is also said to control a pot of cash known as the Paul VI Fund and assets transferred to the Vatican from the Papal State when it was dismembered in the 19th century. L'Espresso, a news magazine, reported that in 2011, under Pope Benedict, the Secretariat of State sank almost 200 million euro in a fund registered in Luxembourg. Among its investments was a 45% stake in a London property. A Vatican official identifies it as the converted Herod's Depository. The building's managers did not respond to a request for confirmation. A Vatican source says that the prosecutor's investigation centered on a chain of transactions to extract the Secretariat of State from the fund and give it full ownership of the London property, once more acting through an intermediary. According to this account, the Secretariat sought a loan from the IOR to pay off a mortgage on the property. But the IOR refused to get involved, even though the overall operation had been remodeled at the behest of the AIF to ensure compliance. In an otherwise vague statement, the Vatican said the investigation was launched on the basis of reports from the IOR and the Office of the Vatican's Auditor General, which is also the Holy See's anti-corruption authority. Among all the questions, one thing is clear. The job of keeping the Vatican and its officials out of financial mischief is far from over. That has implications beyond the city-state. The Vatican's secretive culture and sovereign privileges make it ideal for dubious transactions. Yet responsibility for overseeing its sprawling financial sector is divided between departments whose competences overlap and conflict. The Secretariat for the Economy was meant to bring most of it under a single authority, yet it has never been incorporated into the Vatican Constitution. It exists, yet does not exist, says Mr. Gagliarducci. Currently, it has only an acting head. The same is true of the Auditor General's office. The original appointee, Libero Meloni, resigned in 2017. He later claimed he was threatened with arrest on prefabricated charges if he refused to go. Evidently, they didn't want me to report some things I'd seen, he said. It is into this murky scene that the Vatican's latest external hire is due to step. On October 3rd, Pope Francis named a retired anti-mafia prosecutor, Giuseppe Pignatone, as president of the Vatican court. One of his first trials will be that of the former IOR president, Angelo Caloia, who is accused of skimming tens of millions of euros from property deals. Mr. Pignatone is best known for his role in busting an organized crime network in Rome. He says that he is looking forward to a new and extraordinary experience. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Revelation 17, 4. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now, you can make a new start with Jesus. 
Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.